Thanks, Ken. Good morning again. About uh, 20 years ago, I uh, gave my... I remember speaking for the first time. Um, and I was facing this way, the church. I was probably standing around where Arthur and Colleen are. Um, and, uh, and the technology of the day was a, an overhead projector and uh, printing out a couple of notes. I was doing Romans Road to Salvation and printing out a few notes on a that clear paper that you put upside down and back to front or however you put it so it actually goes up on the, the screen. Spent about 40 hours over a few weeks preparing this uh, 12-minute talk. <clears throat> Yesterday I was reminded of that as uh, I was sat outside and I was putting together a bit of a PowerPoint um, and Mackenzie... My 11-year-old daughter came over my shoulder and, oh, PowerPoint, Dad, yeah. Have you done the format, the transitions, the, the uh, what else is there? Oh, the whole range of things. The backgrounds. <laughs> so <clears throat> I haven't really come far in 20 years, but um, now I have, I've, actually Rachel's been helping me for years of it, putting together things and, and now it's, uh, now it's Mackenzie. You can be forgiven for thinking chapter 6, the commission here of Isaiah, um, should be chapter 1, and we should have probably covered this a few weeks ago. Um, Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Moses and amongst others, uh, before their, their messages and they're prophesying, they're, uh, they are, they're called first and commissioned first by God. Their encounter with the living God is at the beginning well, there's debate around chapters 1 to 5. Is it written and recorded? But Is it before this time or is it after this time? And I don't have a definitive answer. I, I tend to think that this is more just an overture, a, a lengthy introduction. It doesn't specifically give timelines as such, but a, a lengthy introduction to what the rest of the book is about to give detailed description to. It's telling us about who God is and where the people of God are at in relation to this holy God. The people were living lives of ungodliness, lives of drunkenness and idol worship, morally corrupt, stealing from the poor, only concerned about themselves and they turn their back on their God. And uh, God's unchanging character is seen that there will be judgment. He won't stand by quietly and idle as the people sin and rebel against him. Judgment is coming. The Assyrians and the Babylonians will overrun them. There will be consequence. The book of Chronicles and, uh, and Kings, the, there's a couple of books of each. Uh, I'm not sure, Trent, if you've been reading the book of Chronicles this week. Not usually uh, maybe a quiet time book. I haven't, can't remember the last time I was just actually reading through the book of Chronicles. But if you go back to those times, they're the, they're the, they're the books that the, 
uh, the, the times and that gives context to when the prophets were speaking into the lives of the people. And uh, if you go to Second Chronicles 26, you, you'll come across the, the story of King Uzziah. He, he was a king at 16. He was a king for 52 years. And for 40 of those years, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He found favour with God. King Uzziah was a great leader. There was success and there was, there, there was, uh, there was overrunning of their, the Philistines and their enemies. God was using Uzziah in a great way to lead his people. And it says there in 2 Chronicles 26 that he was well known. He became famous and was spoken about by everyone. But then it went to his head. He got arrogant and he said, you know what, I'm pretty invincible. And we can get like that, isn't it, when things are going well? Not just in ministries, but in our careers and in our studies. Oh, look how good I am. And he went into the temple and thought he could do some priestly duties. Now that he's such a well-spoken-about king. But he wasn't doing what God wanted him to do. And the priests were telling him off and he got angry. And God struck him with leprosy. And for the last 10, 12 years of... His life, as even though he was king, he wasn't really serving in that capacity. So he was separated from the people. When things go so wrong, people are so quick to ask, where is God in this? When we're confused about circumstances that aren't how we expect them to turn out, where is God? Why is God allowing this? Where is he? You get this great picture here in the year the king dies in verse 1 of I six of chapter 6 in Isaiah. Not only an imperfect king, but we're talking about a mortal king, a human king. When the king dies, Isaiah saw the Lord. And in John chapter 12, 41, it's said there that he saw Jesus on the throne. And at a time that might have been a bit puzzling for Isaiah, maybe concerning that this great king who didn't end so well in his life has died. Death brings grief and sometimes tragedy and and, and thoughts that what is going on. But in this time, where is God in this? Is that perhaps what Isaiah was asking about? Nearly this time last year, nearly to the day, um, I had to have I had to close the gate at the business and put the padlocks on, and and, and it didn't go back. The the virus had taken over, and the city was empty. And these are some of the thoughts I actually I was thinking. 
What is going on? This isn't how I expected it to turn out. On the, actually, that week was, was a Monday and it was a normal sort of a day. And by the Thursday, the city was empty. And the Friday, I didn't even bother going back. It wasn't worth it. What is going on? Where is God in this? Well, the verse says, and we sung about it this morning, the Lord is seated on the throne. High and exalted. He is always in control. He knows what's coming. And he's in a great position of power and authority. And that never changes. And these first four verses are all about the Lord's holiness and his power and authority. Before we have anything to do with, with Isaiah and the, and preparing Isaiah and, and, and the, the commission of Isaiah and the message, first we come to understand something of the holiness and the might and power and authority of our God. It says above the Lord, were the seraphim. Not sure if I can bring that up, Andrew, but that's all right if we can, uh, seraphim, the fiery ones. That's the, uh, the, the description, that's the meaning of, of that word, seraph, the seraphs, the fiery ones. There's a, you don't really get a, a good, uh, picture of them. Uh, you might have to do that for me. I'm not sure, mate. Yeah, uh, you don't. Not sure if you get a really good grasp of what a seraph looks like, but it's an awesome description that we get here. That's about the best you'll find on uh, Google. And it says that with two, with their six wings, with two they cover up their eyes and two they cover their feet and with two they fly and it tells us that with four of their six wings in the presence of the Lord they're concerning themselves with covering themselves up in his glory and with two of their wings they're doing the will of God they're carrying out what he tells them to do and that struck me as, as such an important lesson to, that it's about attitude first. Re- recognizing who I am before God. And that in His light of His holiness and His perfection and His glory, that it's about recognizing who I am and and being humble in attitude, not losing sight of his gloriness, his holiness, his power, not becoming proud in my our achievements like Uzziah did. You can sense that Uzziah really lost lost sight of the fact that God is on the throne, that he is holy, 
and he started to think he was better than what he actually was. When I started to prayerfully consider God's call on my life for this role last year, and I started to talk about it with Rachel and and then some family and uh, some close uh, friends. I asked them to pray about it and to be honest with me. And um, I, I wasn't sure. I was still sort of saying, I'm not sure. I feel this is what God is telling me, but I, I, I don't want to be just rushing into this. I want to be certain. I don't know. And I came to these uh, verses, the verse in Philippians, as I was just reading through those those epistles to the churches at the time. And and this verse that uh, really struck me and, and I've carried through the whole year last year and into this year is Philippians 2, 3. Paul says, don't do anything out of vain conceit or selfish ambition. And, and that, that then goes into uh, the, the attitude of Christ. Take the attitude of humility. And, at the, and, and I just was, it was struck with God telling me, don't be going into this with ego or worried about title or be proud because that's not what he wants. First and foremost, he wants a humili- uh, an attitude of humility, recognising who I am before God. I am small, weak, but God is big and strong. And anything that can be done through this ministry, uh, relationships built up in the church, uh, relationships in our community built up, ministries flourishing and growing, souls one for the Lord. If anything is going to be achieved, it's in complete dependence on God's power. And that's not just true in the life of, of ministry and paid employment in a church, but it's true if when you go to school, in your communities, in your neighbourhoods, in your workplaces. If there's going to be any praise, any glory, any honour, it's for the Lord. We still haven't got to Isaiah yet. We're in the middle here of recognising God's holiness, his greatness and his power. And we read there the humbled, obedient, angelic seraphim are calling to one another. And what are they saying to each other? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. In the Hebrew language, intensity is, is communicated by repetition. Uh, we see that in a number of times throughout. Uh, we'll get there. Intensity is communicated through repetition. But in English, we're a little bit more complicated. We use things like the adjectives and comparatives and superlatives. You'll be able to tell us all about that, Bailey. Year 12 this year, the down pat English. 
well, I never thought I'd be giving any sort of English lesson, but, you know, we, we use words uh, like Collingwood is good. They're great. And the greatest to talk a point. No, we don't? No, okay. <coughs> I'll try not to get Collingwood into every sermon. Hawthorne. Oh, <laughs> I didn't know you were the Golden Brown family. But we talk about the, you know, the, the big, the bigger and the biggest. Not pointing at anyone in particular. The tall, the, the taller, the taller and the tallest. You see these adjectives, the comparative and superlative, but not so much in the Hebrew language. That that is emphasised through repetition. So we would say holy, holier and holiest if we were to talk about this holiness of God and there is no equal, there is no match, there is no rival. In the Hebrew it's holy, holy is holier and holy, holiest. And here are the seraphs humbled before the mighty power and glory of God on the throne and flying, calling out to one another. What a picture. And at the sound of this call, verse 4, the, the temple shook and what is representative of the presence of God, the smoke filled the temple. And so we come to the preparation of Isaiah. And sometimes I can get this to work, sometimes it's not. I, I might give up, I don't want it to be a distraction. But In chapters 1 to 5, as we said earlier, the, the vision Isaiah was sharing about God's people was regarding their, their wickedness and their, their godliness, their ungodliness and their judgment that was coming. And, but their attitude was terrible. If you go back to chapter 5 and verse 19, it says to those who say, let God hurry, let him hasten his work so we may see it. Let it approach, let the plan of the Holy One come, of Israel come, so we may know it. And you sense their, their cynical, self-indulgent attitude to the message that is coming from Isaiah. Come on, God, okay, get on with the message, get on with it. We need to get on with the rest of our lives, the way we're doing things, it's... Fantastic for us right now. Let's hear it. And I did pinch this from someone, but I thought it was really appropriate and it fits in with this message. A conviction leads to confession, which leads to cleansing. You see, the sight of the Lord has Isaiah in verse 3 saying, woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Going to the Word of God isn't just about learning things, or just about seeking His will, but 
primarily and first to come and be have a revelation of who God is and in light of that be convicted of any sin in our life. Conviction leads to confession, which leads to cleansing, forgiveness. You see, Isaiah recognises he's, he's no better than the rest of the people. He doesn't, he doesn't get a, 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 this conviction of, oh, I'm so much better than the rest of them. How fortunate and blessed I am. They're down here somewhere, but I'm this super spiritual guy. No. He realises in the light of the holiness of God, I am no different than the rest of them. Convicted of his sin leads him to confession. His response is not one of pride, like we've read about in chapter 5, or ego, or self-righteousness, but his response is in need of forgiveness. He recognises his need of God's mercy and grace. And it comes in the form of the seraph, the obedient, humbled, fiery one, who takes a coal from the altar and where the sacrifices for sin in the temple were, were placed for the people. It's from that altar he takes the coal and places it on the lips of Isaiah. And the Lord says, this has touched your lips. Well, I'm sorry, the seraph said, this has touched your lips and your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Only the Lord can can forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. And through the conviction of sin and his confession... He comes with an attitude of needing forgiveness and humility and the Lord forgives. Quite often sin can hold us back from serving God. We might feel conviction but we don't necessarily take a step of confession. And sin holds us back from serving God. Guilt can make us feel useless. Shame can smash our confidence. In Romans 7, Paul talks of the sin that he so easily trips him up. And he seems to be doing the things that he doesn't want to do. He knows they're wrong, but they continue to do them. Anyone relate to that? I can. And this ongoing battle of wanting to do the right thing, wanting to serve God and wanting to be close to him and live the life that he's called me to, but 
this ongoing battle of doing the wrong thing is continual. Even, I'm sure when you get to the age of Raph, you'll still have that struggle. I'm sure, is that right, Rafa? Yeah. Verse 24 in Romans 7, Paul says, What a wretch I am. I am ruined. I am broken. Similar to the words Isaiah is saying here. That conviction, you know, that can fiction that leads to confession and cleansing. What a wretch I am. I am broken. I am ruined. I'm undone. Who can save me from this place? Jesus. There is victory in Jesus. Forgiveness from sin. Peace with God. A new life made available because the Holy Spirit will come into your life. Change the way you think and live. There is power in the life that is offered to you through salvation. And the hope we have of eternity with him. Spurgeon says this, God will never do anything with us until he has first of all undone us. God will never do anything with us Till he has first of all undone us. Over the last few years, number of years, there are times in my life where I have been at that place of brokenness and being undone. It's a what you might say you've hit rock bottom. Ruined. How can there be any use for me? And that's not a place where God wants us to to stay. He certainly wants us to get there. It's not a place where God wants us to stay. It, it, It is a place where God wants us to, at that point, to turn to him. That point of conviction and turn to him and say, Lord, in humility I come and I ask for forgiveness and thank you for the cleansing blood of Jesus. God is always faithful and uh, and along my journey and my family's journey we have seen that he has provided constantly and he has brought me to a place in my life in 2020 and 2021 where I am prepared where I am ready to be used by him in this way, at this right time, in this role. So we have the holiness of God, the the, the preparation of Isaiah in that conviction and and confession and cleansing. And, And now comes the commission, the commission of Isaiah. In verse 8, he says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Uh, There are very few places in scripture where you read about God uh, on the throne, remember, high and exalted, 
asking a question. Is there something God doesn't know? Does he need us to tell him an answer? But right back in the very beginning when the Adam and Eve sinned, that God had a question. Where are you? Where are you? But his questions are not about God not knowing, of course, about seeking out a response from his people. And Isaiah responds to the Lord, send me. I'm ready. I'll send me. And I want to make a real strong point this morning that the message is always more important than the messenger. The message is always more important than the messenger. No matter the the, the miraculous calling or the, the background of a person, nothing is ever more important than the message. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, don't, don't go around following Apollos or me or Cephas. Some say they follow Christ, but others saying they follow... No, the, the message of the cross... That's the most important. It's foolishness to the wise and those who have everything, but this is the this is what you should be worried about, not worrying about following me around. The message Isaiah is given to share is it's not a great message. It's not a message of restoration, of great hope. It's unpleasant. It's hard. Preach to these people who will not listen. It says there. Preach to these people who are going to reject the message, whose hearts are hardened towards the message. Faithful ministry, faithful ministry softens hearts and it hardens hearts. In Isaiah 28, the people mock Isaiah for the message. It's so simple. What are we, babies, that you would come at us with such a simple message? As I said before, the gospel we read about is foolishness to the wise. It's foolishness to those who think they have everything. They don't need, what do I need God for? Salvation, it's free. Forgiveness of sins. I don't have to work towards it. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to pay for it. Seems a bit easy. That can't be right. The gospel message won't be received by all. Some will reject it. Some will reject God. Not everyone that comes to kids club, playgroups, youth group, Sunday morning, not everyone will turn to Jesus for forgiveness. They won't all be confessing and be cleansed. Let us not be disappointed when people harden their hearts towards the message of God, when they reject the Lord. Our job is to be faithful 
in ministry. The message is always more important than the messenger. What a miserable task, Isaiah must have thought. How long for, Lord? How long must this go on for? And he read there, until the cities are destroyed, until the houses are deserted, the fields are ruined and ravaged. And the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is forsaken. And even though this is a miserable picture, and even though a tenth will return, they too will be chastised and chased out and burnt out. So is this the end of God's grace? Is this the end of God's favour upon his people? I mean, he is fed up with their disobedience. God has had enough of them doing their own thing. Surely he has come to the end of his tether to say, enough, I'm finished with Israel. But no. His grace is never ending. His grace is never ending. But as the terebinth and oak leaf stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. The nation of Israel, while judged and, and, and God's anger and poured out upon their rebellion and sin, he hasn't eradicated the nation. His promise to Abraham is not broken. God has not given up on his people. The Messiah in Isaiah 11 says will come from the line of David and Jesse and bring salvation to all, the Jew and the Gentile who believe in him. God will never give up on his people and we can come this morning Uh, maybe you're broken and maybe you are hurting and maybe you are undone and you're at that place of rock bottom but you can come and say God has not given up on me God has not given up on me the musos are going to come and and lead us thank thank you guys because this is a last minute thing but I, I thought it would be appropriate in reflection Uh, to sit and sing if you like or just listen to the, the team play. Um, but yes, help me. You can sit and sing along. The Lord said to Paul, and I want to finish with this, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. And if that is you this morning, and whether you're in your teens or 80s and you come here this morning feeling useless because of guilt and shame and sin is weighing you down, God's grace is sufficient for where you're at right now. Thanks, guys.